right. Welcome to uh, another episode of the Brew Deck. I uh, got up early, climbed up on the Brew Deck, looking at all the dials and getting ready to start the day. Looked at the whiteboard this morning and looks like it is time to brew some seltzer, which unfortunately begs the question. I don't know the first thing about seltzer production. And if it was kind of left up to me, I'd just throw some vodka and some Topo Chico in there and stir it around and come up with some, but probably would not make it very long as a, uh, as a brewer. Before you hang up and decide to listen to something else, I know there's a lot of kind of stigma and, and opinions around seltzer, especially in the brewing industry. You, you got people that are adamant about, you know, hey, I, don't, I want to stay away from hard seltzers altogether. And then you got the group that is really looking to capitalize on whatever piece of the market they can. So uh, excited about today to learn a bit more about seltzers, production, and uh, utilize that opportunity in your, your brew house and your current setup. And got the luxury of having... Uh, Tim Roberts on board. Uh, welcome, Tim. Thanks a lot, Toby. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. You know, I before we brought you on board, Tim, I, I saw some information about you. I saw your background, but you sent over kind of your experience. In all honesty, it's like a rap sheet of a hardened criminal. It's so great. I mean, <laughs> the experience you have is unreal. I mean, it's, you know, started out in the craft beer industry while living in London in the 90s. And then uh, I guess you, you made it back to the U.S. and worked at Dock Street, one of uh, Philly's oldest brew pubs, started as a bartender, server, and then like a, a lot of folks in the brewing industry, just volunteered on your days off at the brewery and kind of worked your way into assistant brewer position. And then after that, head brewer at Independence Brew Pub, and then uh, head brewer at Yards Brewing Company, as most of us know, the largest brewery in the greater Philly area. 20 years later, you land with the country mall group and we're unbelievably ecstatic to have you on board. I mean, just, just a wealth of knowledge and a, and a fantastic uh, representative of not only us, but our customers. So uh, yeah, really appreciate you coming on board. Yeah, sure thing. And thanks for the kind words, Toby. I've, you know, I was a brewer for 21 years. So like you said, I was lucky enough to have some opportunities and some help from some great people in the industry. So able to get some great experience during that time. And, you know, I always like sort of giving back and sharing as much as I can. Not to say that, you know, there aren't people that have forgotten more about seltzer production than I know, but I certainly learned some tips over the way. Yep, absolutely. Well, interesting. Tell me about living in London. Well, London, I mean, when I graduated, I graduated with a degree in international studies. So honestly, you know, what, you know, what's that qualified you to do? Not too much. So I honestly had no idea what I wanted to do. But hell, international studies maybe qualifies me to, to live abroad. So I basically signed up for what amounted to a, is a student work exchange program that allowed me to work legally in London for about, I guess I was there for about 10 or 11 months before I came back to the States. And I didn't know it at the time, but I ended up working at a world famous pub in London called the White Horse on Parsons Green. And it was run by Mark Dorber, who was sort of, you know, a real big wig in those circles about keeping cask beer, because, you know, I don't know how much everyone knows about it, but, you know, storing and keeping cask beer is a little bit more complicated. So you need to know a lot about it. So Mark taught me a whole lot about that process, what you do. And so sort of inevitably you start thinking about beer in general, how it's brewed, because you know, in order to learn some of the details, you, you got to have the basics. And so that's when I kind of formulated my plan to become a brewer, because honestly, I just had no idea what profession I wanted to do. So, you know, the living in London was great. <laughs> you know, living in London in the mid 90s was awesome. And it's probably something that a lot of not a lot of people know. But typically pub workers in London are from other places like Australia or New Zealand or, of course, the U.S. and Canada. And, you know, for housing, everyone sort of lives almost in dorms up above the pub. So you could imagine they feed you. And so all my money was, you know, expendable. 
And I was living with about 15 or 20 other people in their mid 20s out to have a good time. So yeah, I can, uh, I can imagine some listeners that would probably drop what they're doing right now and take up that opportunity. That's pretty cool. And I, I did something similar. I spent a couple of years in Playa del Carmen uh, shortly after college. And it's one of those where I would definitely encourage my kids to get out and see the world and do the same thing. So that's a, that's an awesome experience. We've got some music fans in our group. And when they knew I was going to get you on this morning's podcast, they asked specifically if you got to see any performances by some UK bands or, you know, little Radiohead or some Blur or some indie Brit pop bands while you're out there. Well, oddly enough, and Toby, I don't know if you know this about me, but I, um, I was a drummer in high school and college and stuff like that. And I recently kind of took it back up. So what I'm about to say was probably of, uh, I know it would have shocked uh, high school Tim or, you know, Tim before he got to London. But, you know, I did see some American bands. Actually, I saw Primus there. I saw when I was studying there, I saw the Smashing Pumpkins on the Siamese Dream Tour in a small club, like maybe, I don't know, 800, 1,000 people. So that was it's probably the best live show I saw in London. But what I really got into, and it, it was easy to do in, uh, in London in the mid-90s, was techno. And so I never, as I say, I never in a million years would have imagine me getting into electronic music, but, you know, just the atmosphere and the clubs and, you know, everything involved. I was able to see people like Carl Cox and Richie Houghton and Surgeon and Ben Clock, just some unbelievable people uh, in London and really gained an appreciation for techno at that time. Man, that's wild. I learn, <laughs> so, learn, learn something new every day. You know, like I'm, I'm thinking about our crew and how many people have played musical instruments. We should get a band together. You can yeah, handle drums. Sure. I think like Ledke's plays the bagpipes pretty well. That, that'd be a strange mix, <laughs> but man, we could we could do something together. That'd be pretty interesting. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> so once you got back stateside, I mean, you settled into what became a pretty hefty brewing career in Philly. So I think a lot of people and most people know about Yard. So tell me about Yards when you started there, you know, compared to more recently. And I, I bet you saw a lot of evolution over the years you were there. Yeah, for sure. You know, it's funny just thinking about evolution, just saw some, you know, beer through the ages kind of thing or the craft beer through its history. And when I started at Yards in 2008, there were about 1500 breweries when I started brewing in 98. And that really didn't change. And that was really kind of surprising to me. It was also, you know, I remember starting at Yards. And the explosion hit, but it was a little later than I thought. So I think it really started to take hold in about 2014. And then the last five years of my brewing career, the amount of breweries went from, say, 2000 to 8,500. So, yeah, I saw some changes and I saw some changes at Yards, too. I joined them when they had sort of a, a company split and one partner kept the physical brewery and, and started a new brand. And then I, of course, joined Tom Kehoe, who owned the brand of Yards as president and founder. And then we built a brewery. There were about seven of us that kind of really were super duper hands on where we were running an electrical line and, and putting up drywall and floor coatings. And I learned how to pipe glycol and the, uh, all the intricacies of chillers and, and all that stuff, which was really going to down the road help me a lot. But the year before that I had started at Yards, their largest production was 5,700 barrels, our first year at the new facility, which, of course, Part of that new facility was to add for you know capacity. Uh, we think we did 9,400 barrels the first year, and the last year I was with Yards, we did a, we did about I don't know just shy of 45,000 barrels or something like that. So it was a big growth, and I'm not saying you know that's attributable to me by any means. It was certainly it was an explosion in the industry, like we all talked about. But that growth really afforded me some really unbelievable opportunities. You know, to a you know most importantly, and what I always say is the best part about craft beer 
is not the beer, it's not the breweries, it's the people that are involved. And that's really what, for me, has kept it interesting for 21 years. And, you know, yourself included, Toby, and everyone at Country Mall Group has been you know, really kind to me and really supportive in, in what was really a big change. And, you know, over the years, sure, we won some medals and, uh, you know, we made some beer that I was really, really proud of. But to me, you know, when I talk about my brewing career, probably the thing that stands out most and, you know, I got to give a lot of credit to Tom and the owners of Yards to, for having a lot of faith in me in terms of the impact that I was able to have in building. We built a, a pretty large brewery, not far from the original brewery where I started at Yards, but it was 77,000 square feet. We were asked to open a brewery with 100,000 barrels capacity, and we calculated that the end capacity of this brewery, you know, with obviously some fermentation space capacity, will be about 300,000 barrels. We bought a 100-barrel Zeman brew house that was capable of doing 12 brews a day, which is pretty spectacular. So if you think about it, you're starting a new boil every two hours. So that capacity is, you know, wow. capacity. Yeah. Yeah. It was something else. And we had a separate louder put in, a 20 barrel louder, so we could use all the rest of the vessels to also do 20 barrel batches for R and D or count specific kind of things. And, you know, of course, and then all the other, you know, the other one of the other motivations to building a new brewery in a new location was to install a canning line. So we bought a KHS canning line, which was the first small machine that they ever made at about 225 cans a minute. I don't know if you're aware, but KHS makes the largest filler seamers in the world. You know, that might do 1,200 cans a minute. You know, Heineken's running at multiples of them and Budweiser and, and all those guys. And then, of course, we put in a dedicated CIP system, a new 30 square meter Primus B2 DE filter, which, you know, I'm maybe I'm a dinosaur, but I'm a believer in DE filtration. We put dedicated CIP systems, yeast handling, alpha Laval did all the piping and valve matrix. And then also, you know, kind of going back to learning a lot of the nuts and bolts of brewing at the first brewery, um, we were able to design or, or, you know, certainly integrate chiller systems and uh, water treatment systems and boiler systems. And so, you know, it was really to me and, and probably one of the reasons I talk about it and sorry to talk your ear off about it, but it was kind of the culmination of a lot of learning that I had done that really kind of put it all together. And so, you know, that was really exciting to me, even beyond tasting the beer, which was better right out of the gate than the old brewery, in my opinion, and seeing all that shiny stainless steel. Yeah, absolutely. The term jack of all trades is uh, certainly right up your wheelhouse. It's Absol pretty cool. As I say, I'm a dinosaur. We used to be more like that. I think people have gotten a little more specialized, <laughs> whether that's good yeah. or bad. I don't know. <laughs> Yeah. Now you mentioned multiple GABF medals. That in itself is fantastic. But what is this all-time grand champion Royal Stumbler? What is that? <laughs> I, I see this in your notes here. I'm curious what it is. Oh, you're digging deep into my biography. So a good friend of mine. <laughs> and in fact, it's where I met someone that I kind of call one of my brewing mentors. His name is Brandon Greenwood at the Nodding Head. And he had a barman there named Brendan Hartframp that designed a beer festival that was a little bit unorthodox. Maybe arguably a little bit less about tasting beer than other ones. So basically what it amounted to was a keg race. So the winner, the Royal Stumbling List brewer, was the first person to uh, empty their keg. So the first year, everyone thought, wow, no one's going to actually kick a half. It was a pretty small event. It was maybe a couple hundred people there or something like that. It's a pretty small location. But sure enough, someone emptied it the first year. And so after that, I got it in my head to win the rest of them. So, you know, I didn't win the rest of them, but I think I've won maybe something like six out of 10 of them. And the whole trick was, you know, I was working at brew pubs in the beginning was you'd bring a whole bunch of good looking waiters and waitresses and they'd walk around with pitchers and everyone wants to get a beer from those guys, right? 
And then you'd get a couple big oafs sitting by the keg, just down in beer after beer. And I think the last year they had it, I think we finished the keg in something like 14 minutes. Something, I mean, like Damn. you would just open the spigot and start pouring it. And then that was it. <laughs> Gosh. Yeah, Sounds like a place days. I'd like to be on a weekend. Yeah, man. Yeah, it doesn't <laughs> exist anymore, but it was a fun, uh, it was a fun festival. And after the festival, always turned out to be really fun, too, as you might imagine. Oh, I bet. Well, we've got an official new nickname for you. Stumbler. <laughs> right. right. Yeah. Cool. That's awesome. Well, let's get into uh, seltzers. Again, I mentioned there's kind of a stigma, right? You got some real hardcore craft guys, craft breweries that just yeah, really take a <gasps> on it to no other better way to put it. You know, and then you got the ones that are really embracing the opportunity to kind of roll some of this into their portfolio. Just some quick numbers. All of us may already know, but hard seltzer industry could grow to be a $2.5 billion beverage category by 2021. Currently, it's worth $550 million. That growth assumes a 66% annual growth rate. So put in perspective, in 2018, 14 million cases of hard seltzer in that beverage category sold. And they're looking to be 72 million cases in 2021. There's a lot of people getting in to that market in all honesty. And Tim, I think you've probably seen it in your history in the market as well, but seltzer is eating away at some of the craft beer market share. I mean, granted, they are taking some historically vodka drinkers and wine drinkers and kind of converting some of those, but it's it's something that we all need to look at and certainly something that needs to be considered when folks are looking to kind of add into what they're doing, add into their portfolio and, and looking at increasing some of that revenue by way of hard seltzers. You know, what's interesting also yesterday, I saw Coca-Cola is now releasing a hard version of their Topo Chico. <laughs> I hadn't heard that. Isn't that a while? Not, yeah. I can't say I'm surprised. Nope, not at all. So that being said, Tim, uh, why don't you uh, tell us a little bit about Seltzer, what experience you've had with it, you know, specifically at Yards, and then a little bit about production and some details about how our listeners can take a look at it and potentially uh, brew some of these there with the equipment they're working on. When I left, which was the very beginning of 2019, and on good terms, I'll add, we were playing around and we were doing some test batches. And I know now they're putting out more of it because, like you said, it kind of taken hold in the market. And I think, you know, people talk about, especially at older breweries like Yards, relevancy. And do you want to leave money on the table if someone's buying a seltzer? Do you want to jump on the bandwagon? Do you want to be second to the, the party? I don't, you know, there's all these terms. But, you know, I was talking to the same guy that I mentioned earlier, Brandon made a lot of seltzer in his life. And we both kind of agreed, you know, being kind of old dogs now is making seltzers a craft, just like making beer. You can make a good one or you can make a bad one. You know, there's no doubt about it. And so to me, you know, in my life, you know, whether I'm behind a drum kit or, or whatever I'm doing, if I'm going down a mountain on a snowboard, I'm trying to do something the best that I can, you know. And so to me, it's a craft. You can do it better. And so, you know, why not learn that craft and learn how to make something that's tasty and drinkable rather than a hot mess, you know, that some of your competitors down the street are doing. And to me, the really the only way to approach that in both beer brewing and in the seltzer brewing is with knowledge, you know? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. All honest, there is times where uh, I want a seltzer, you know, and that refreshing, especially down here sure. in Texas, man, it gets hot, you know? Oh, yeah. And I want yeah, something low calorie and it, yeah, it tastes great. But I think you're right. Uh, the more we see of this product and market, the more people realize it is a craft. And there's people that are being completely transparent with their ingredients, which some of the big guys are not. So I think we'll continue to see this segment progress. 
Yeah, absolutely. You know, another way to look at it, you know, it's another chance to be creative. You know what I mean? It's a lot like beer in a lot of ways that people don't ever talk about, but it's, you know, there are differences and those differences, you know, are sort of obviously avenues for making changes and adding some creativity. And, and, you know, I would argue that the entire craft beer movement is founded on creativity and doing something that they couldn't get somewhere else. Right. Yep. That's right. Well, let's get into some of the nuts and bolts. A lot of this will probably be over my head, but I'll send it your way and let you start talking about some of the details about what's important to look for in creating seltzers in the brew house and what you're looking to focus on. Yeah, sure. And, you know, if I'm boring you to tears, cry Uncle Toby. Um, never. You know, I'll probably, you know, I'll, I'll keep it medium technical, I think, but I'm also always happy to follow up offline after this and clear up any things. But like I said, you know, I like to start talking about seltzers as as some of the similarities, right? So, you know, the strength is sort of usually 5% or so, which is kind of common for beer, right? You're talking about an alcohol that's not distilled. And so you kind of take that aspect of it out. You know, it's obviously liquid and you're talking about fermentation, right? So the big, big difference, of course, is that it's not malt, And so you don't have malt sugar, which is, and you don't have wort, which is, you know, these are all questions and these are kind of some of the challenges everyone has to deal with if they're going to make a seltzer. And so, you know, where is that sugar? So as I was brought up in the industry, it was always, they had to be 51% malt sugar based. So they were sort of beers like that first generation, like, you know, Bartles and James, I mean, I'm dating myself, but Bartles and James and Zima and sneaking them in your neighbor's backyard and all that stuff. But I remember those well. Oh yeah. 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 (laughs) I mean, Zima, one of the big tidbits I always throw out non-brewers that everyone's interested in is Zima was clear because they actually filtered the color out. They filtered it so finely. Yeah. And so that's how they were able to get it clear. And I think that's also the clarity of seltzers, something not to be ignored and including with the base. And so nowadays the base is just sugar, right? And so sugar, there's lots of sugars in the world, right? But it's not maltose and it's not maltotriose which yeast will only ever eat a percentage of. So most people, I think, are doing it with dextrose. So dextrose is really cheap. In theory, it's 100% fermentable, though I did some tests. We, we brewed with some sugar when I was at Yards, and we ended up using invert sugar, which is a really common British brewing sugar. And to my palate, the dextrose left behind residual sugar, or at least character, right? At least the perception of sugar. So, you know, there's a reason that the champagne of beers tastes like the champagne of beers, is that I believe that dextrose is not as clean as other sugar sources. It's certainly a quality brewing ingredient, but it does impart both flavor and surely it imparts color. And so, you know, and again, I'm offering up all this advice in the spirit of creativity and knowledge, not in me trying to beat anyone over the head about the right way or the wrong way to do it. But, you know, in my opinion, the best source of sugar for seltzers is cane sugar. And so you can buy granular cane sugar, you could buy a liquid cane sugar, and it just depends, sort of that decision will just depend on what type of brewery you work in. So at Yards, you know, we have the resources and wherewithal, and, you know, and we're looking at safety in breweries that large, we're going to pump it into the kettle, right? Whereas you're in a little five-barrel system and you want to climb up on a platform and dump bags of sugar in, you know, that's, that's the other option. And, and, you know, and that leads me to another point, do you need to boil the sugar? Like in most things, I would generally say better safe than sorry, but I know the really, really large seltzer producers in order to save an energy and time and space, you know, they're not even boiling it and they have to have very, very stringent microbiological controls in order to do that. But it's just something that comes up. So it's something to consider. You know what I mean? Do you need to dedicate a 75 minute or 90 minute boil to seltzers? And the answer to that is certainly no. Like really, you're just trying to sterilize the liquid right before you send it to fermentation. 
And while I'm on that topic, topic of strength and water and stuff, one of the big tips that I, I recommend, and it's something we did a lot of at Yards, not really quite high gravity brewing, but basically the idea that you're brewing a beer or a seltzer to a higher strength than you actually want the final product. And then as late in the process is reasonable, you're going to add water to it. So in beer, because you have the staling mechanisms of the hops and the malt interaction and all that, right? Um, you have to be very, very careful about oxygen content. So we had a deaerated water system that made water with dissolved oxygen at levels of less than 10 parts per billion. And so that's not so easy to do. That's a little bit expensive, but larger brewers will have the wherewithal. But what I recommend to people making seltzers is look at making your own deaerated water and adding it later. And there's a reason for that. But how you do that, you just take hot liquor, basically, you bubble CO2 through it. And you're not going to get under 10 parts per billion, but you're going to get pretty oxygen-free water. And in this case, the oxygen eventually could interact with the flavorings. But the idea of doing that to a little bit, you know, you can just store it in a tank and then you can dilute it. And the idea there is to minimize esters. And you want to minimize esters because you want this thing to taste like nothing, which is something weird to talk about, but you want your base right. to be as flavor neutral as possible. And so arguably the largest flavor contributing to brewing beer is yeast. And, you know, and that's another, certainly a hot topic. Yeah, it's, it's probably one of our most frequently asked questions is which yeast to use. And there's, there's a lot of them out there. And I guess every brewer would probably have a different opinion uh, about what they use. But tell us about that yeast selection. Well, yeah, it's like how many brewers does it take to change a light bulb? It takes 50, one to change the bulb and 49 to say, yeah, I wouldn't have done it that way. <laughs> yeah. um, and it's the same thing. And, you know, again, I would go to the yeast as another commonality between traditional beer and seltzer, right? So, so what are the things that yeast does? I mean, it ferments and then they're beyond fermentation, which all yeast do. There's some qualities to yeast. There's attenuation. What percentage of Sugar will it eat? And that's kind of a different question here. Typically a cleaner product or a, a, a crisper product. Will it flocculate? That's a big issue because seltzer's clear. To me, it's in a way like nitrogenated beers. A lot of the presentation of seltzer is the looks, right? I mean, I would argue presentation is important for beer too, of course, but for seltzer, you know, you want it to look a certain way. Is it alcohol tolerant? That's a big one, of course. Is it alcohol tolerant? Because a lot of people are brewing sort of stronger seltzers or they're diluting them, like I said, they're trying to do them fast. And the big sort of the buzzwords when you're deciding on seltzer yeast you know, are you using distilling yeasts? Are you using champagne yeasts? Are you using turbo yeasts? Or are you using yeast that you can crop from the neighboring fermenter that has beer in it? And I think that's really up to the brewer. And I think there's no right or wrong answer. I mean, I think you want, a, as I say, a distilling yeast could have other qualities that you want. A turbo yeast could have other qualities that you want, but hopefully doing things faster for processing time. And so could a champagne yeast. So you look at that because really what you want going back to it, you know, and I don't mean to harp on it, but you're trying to make something that tastes like nothing. So you really want to minimize esters, which is the whole point of dilution, like I had mentioned earlier. And you also want to make sure you have a very, very healthy fermentation, because if you don't have a healthy fermentation, you're going to get flaws, which are going to come out like gangbusters in a really delicately flavored base. So you want to make sure you have all the elements of the right flavor, the right, you know, nutrients and everything for the yeast. And also to not get any higher alcohols other than ethanol. And the one that I kind of come back to, and I think it's just how it's packaged is really good. I've seen it referred to as TY48. I've also seen it referred to as Pathfinder. But it's basically yeast. It's dried yeast that's packaged with nutrient. And so it takes some of the guessing game out of it. And I mean, you think the yeast question is one that everyone has an opinion on. You start talking about nutrient, you know, that's a whole other can of worms. But because it's all packed together, it really takes off. And I've had people tell me that they use it with no nutrient at all and that they're getting super clear and clean fermentations. And 
just sort of the ease of everything, I think, really appeals to me because, you know, 12 brews a day, you got some pretty fancy <gasps> stuff there at Yards. But I would argue that with recipe formulation, and if you can keep it simple in every way, the brewing process, keep it as simple as possible because you're just inviting mistakes to happen. So I touched on it a little bit there, but the biggest difference, I would argue, between seltzers and beer, aside from any kind of flavor issues, is the idea is that there is no malt in it. And so when you look at your malt specs, what are the big numbers that jump out at you? Their first one, of course, is extract. Everyone wants to see 80, 82% because that's where your fermentable sugars are going to come from, your body, and you want bang for your buck. I would argue the next number everyone's looking about it is the color because, you know, color, everyone has an idea what kind of beer they want to make. Color would often define a lot of the character in the malt. So everyone's looking at a color. Do you want something at two? Do you want something at chocolate malt at 400, you know, what do you want? So, you know, I don't know how you can make an argument, but the third number everyone looks to on malt spec sheets is protein. So protein is typically around 10%, a little higher for distilling malts, you know, but everyone knows it's right around that kind of ballpark. And the protein in brewing beer gives you the matrix, which holds the foam, which is very important. But I mean, when you talk about if you're buying malt by weight, 80% of it is extract, it's carbohydrate, and then you got some husk, but then 10% is a lot of it, and that's protein. And that protein is important for foam, like I said, but it's really even much, much more important for fermentation because yeast needs what's called free amino nitrogen in order to have a healthy fermentation. And going back to it, if you're not giving your yeast and your seltzer fermentations free amino nitrogen, you're not going to have a healthy fermentation, which is exactly what you need. So that's referred to as FAN. And let me play a little acronym game. A a lot of people talk about DAP, which is really just a purest form of nitrogen, which is an acronym for diammonium phosphate. All of these things are very, very important. And you really have to find a nutrient or some kind of other source for these things, because really the nitrogen is a building box for amino acids, which is building blocks for protein. And all of these things are dancing around the issue, but they're all very, very important for yeast synthesis as are the sterols and and fatty acids that are often, you know, people use yeast hulls or what's really just kind of dead yeast for lipid production, which the yeast needs in order to reproduce and healthy reproduction of yeast is really essential going back to uh, harping on a clean fermentation because that's really what you want. And there's a million of them. There's a million. You shop online. We have five of them, right? And there's a lot out there. But you know what? And I get asked this question a lot. For the most part, they're all the same stuff. You know, <laughs> you, you really want nitrogen yeah. and lipids. That's the important thing. And supplier specific, they all have specs on it and stuff. And I have noticed, and I've talked to people about it, a lot of them say, oh, you got to put this much in, and you're starting to really talk about a lot of cost per barrel. I'd argue, and I have some brewers sort of looking at it, is that because it's sort of all the same stuff, that you can start paring that down. Start at the supplier recommended dosing rates and see if you can back it off a little bit. See if you can continue to have healthy fermentations because really, you know, no one's splitting the atom here, but you do need absolutely yeast nutrient if you have a pure sugar base because that's the only way you're going to get a decent fermentation. When you start talking about beer fermentations or seltzer fermentations, one thing that I think brewers kind of gloss over and I've always felt is very, very important in getting it right in terms of brewing is oxygenation or aeration of your work. That's extra crucial here because you're stressing the yeast because these yeasts in general want all the stuff that's in malt. I mean, it's not an accident that people have been brewing beer for 6,000 years. It works because these things work well together. And so I really want to emphasize, you really want to oxygenate your wort and you cannot over-oxygenate your seltzer base. I know some people, and I'll recommend even if, especially if you don't see a real jump off of fermentation, go ahead and circulate that tank through a stone, an aeration stone, and just circulate and circulate it. Make sure that yeast has enough air, which allows it to use the lipids and sterols in order to reproduce. Make sure it has enough because it's absolutely essential. 
at the end of the day, if the product sucks, it just doesn't taste good. Nobody's going yep. back to it. So I know the purpose of, you know, producing the seltzer kind of on the production end is obviously get it as flavorless as possible. But at the end of the day, you know, there's fruit purees and flavoring, et cetera, et cetera. Tell me a little bit about those and kind of how a brewer can ultimately get a great end product that doesn't taste like. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know any other way to put it. I've had some that are bad. Uh, we've all had bad ones and that's not really an <laughs> elephant in the room. But if you're making something that tastes like nothing. That's going to be your clean slate to add something creative and hopefully delicious and hopefully you do it in the right way. So to get back real quick to making a flavorless base, there's a couple other techniques that are often used and I'll tell people to do it before adding flavor. One is scrubbing and it's also done in beer, but it's a little bit more worrisome. You can just bubble nitrogen through the bottom of the tank and it'll drive off all flavor. So you're typically using it to drive off the flavors that you don't want. But in this case, you don't even need to worry about scrubbing it because you don't want any flavor. You also don't need to worry about ruining the foam or collapsing protein in your tank, which will cause precipitate or you know, no worries there. And then another thing that a lot of people are doing is using activated carbon filtration. So that's something that's been used in the spirits industry for a long time because they're trying to take out some of the nasty flavors that distillation sometimes brings about or really hot fermentations. And so they use big filters and they're dosing in pure carbon, usually powdered carbon. That sucks all the flavor out of the substrate, just like your Brita filter does in your home. So what I've seen is, and I know Paul makes a cartridge that's impregnated with powdered carbon. You can also use sheet filters and they do the same thing, but it's just a nice way to helpfully clean it up before you add your flavors. And so just like in yeast selection and just how brewers like to be creative and probably to some degree, that's why we're all here. There's a million ways to skin this cat. And so there are just a couple things to keep in mind. So I, I think the biggest one, and a lot of people are doing it now, is back sweetening. So if you add your flavor, if you add a sugar source, which would be like fruit purees or concentrates or anything like that, you're going to add a fermentable sugar back to your product when it shouldn't ferment. Now, Maybe I'm calling myself out as a dinosaur, but to me, that scares me to death because either you better be really sure about your process that you absolutely have no yeast in there and zero yeast is really tough, or you need to temperature control it from the minute it leaves your brewery or hopefully it doesn't leave your brewery until the minute that someone's popping open that can. Otherwise, you're going to get fermentation in the can, which can cause explosions and, and it's something that's very dangerous. So obviously, let's hope that everyone that's doing is very conscientious. But it's also sort of a segue for me to talk about pasteurization. That, like seltzer, like you say, is kind of a dirty word in our industry. But if you want to can something that's going to be sitting on your shelf and you have fruit juice in it, you need a tunnel pasteurizer. Even a flash is not enough. So you need to make sure it's stable. And so there are additives and then there are actual fruit flavorings. And again, from one given supplier uh, or one given company, sometimes I found in my career that some additives taste good. For example, I had a, a terrible trial with a raspberry additive. It started to taste like Robitussin, but the chocolate additive uh, from the same company just tasted great. And it was really a good tool to use. And to me, you know, I don't necessarily, as long as it's not unsavory, I don't know, I don't care how you get to the end result, but that's what really matters to me. And then there's fruit and fruit can be added post and pre-fermentation. I have more experience adding it in pre-fermentation. And the con of that is that you might lose some of that character. And for my money, maybe you did lose some character, but I always found the character of fruit added pre-fermentation very nice. You don't need to deal with the sugar. You get extract from the fruit. And believe me, that character of the flavor does come through. The pro is that going back to it, you don't have to worry about all that sugar in the end. So I think you do want to add some flavorings as you would 
and it could be the form of juice, it could be puree, it could be concentrate, or it could be additives. And I think that's just kind of where people have to experiment. It could also be natural product like the zest of citrus fruit or anything, or you could use whole raspberries, which is just a little bit of a different processing issue. But I think in the farm to table movement, I think we're all part of the same movement. And so I think that can be an advantage for everyone or a nice story to tell your customers. Yeah, just a fantastic amount of information. Reach out to Tim if you've got any follow-up questions. He's at Tim Roberts at countrymalt.com. Yeah, along with Tim, we've got a lot of people in our squad who have had some experience with seltzers process and, you know, obviously can help you out if you're looking for a particular product, if you're just getting started in that side of things. So that's awesome, Tim. Thanks. Any final words before we go into something a little uh, fun that might pique the interest a bit? Yeah, let me just bend your ear for just another minute or two, Toby. And that's what everyone talks about stabilizing. The typical stabilizers are potassium sorbate and potassium metabisulfate. Ideally, you don't need these products. They're added. I mean, if you have sugar and seltzer after packaging, you do need it. You need something and it could either be a tunnel pasteurizer, like I mentioned, or something like this. But I'm asked a lot about sort of dosage rates and what I recommend, it's something everyone has to find their own way, but a good sort of starting off point would be about five PPM or parts per million of potassium sorbate and for potassium metabisulfate, I recommend 0.02 ppm. And it's kind of going at it, the same problem from two different ways. The potassium sorbate is a preservative that stops and inhibits fermentation in wild yeast and your yeast and in yeast reproduction. And the potassium metabisulfate is A, an antioxidant. So it will also scavenge oxygen, which is also the enemy of a lot of the flavor additives but it will also create sulfur dioxide which is just sort of a natural sanitizer that's you know it's okay it's something that can be consumed by humans obviously and it's also it's a healthy product so it's something to consider but for me to keep it simple if you can avoid them avoid them and one last note is just know your customers you know some of the big real health food chains are not going to let you have those in your product so just something to think about and know where you're going to sell it all right tim yeah hey we're going to take a quick break but another session of the whirlpool is coming up real quick so stick around country milk group has added several yeast strains to fit the needs of your newest craft beverage creations today's spotlight red star premier cuvee known for its high alcohol tolerance low hydrogen sulfide production, and low foam. Red Star Premier Cuvée is well-suited for neutral alcohol bases for hard seltzers due to its neutral flavor profile and high level of attenuation. It can also be useful for restarting stuck fermentations. For more details about this yeast and yeast nutrients, email info at countrymalt.com or contact your Country Malt Group representative. for my favorite time of the day. We talk business and now uh, get to jump in the old whirlpool where it's hot and steamy. And have you ever gotten into the whirlpool in, in one of your, <laughs> your facilities? Like literally? Uh, oh yeah, too many too many times to, well, yeah, to count. To clean. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, right? Uh, yeah. To clean, and I always toyed with the idea of a hot tub, but no, nah, I never did that. Right. So we uh, we call this segment the whirlpool. Really a pun intended where we just uh, we have a good time. We jump in the hot water and grab a beverage and, and have a good time here. So one of the things I've done in the past and I'd like for you, you to do it and hopefully uh, 
and we have some luck with it, but I call it the uh, Rolodex roulette. And if you're willing to play, it goes like this. You just take out your phone, spin your contact wheel, see who it comes up on. And if one of those hits is someone that might be willing to chat with us, we'll give them a shout. Are you in? <laughs> sure. So let me, yeah. let me give it a whirl, as they say. So, okay. You know, my daughter is a fascinating 11-year-old, but I think, I'm not sure it's appropriate to have her on an alcohol content topic. Unless she's right? been so, making seltzers. Who knows? Yeah, well, not as far as I know, but she does stay up pretty late. <laughs> so let me, let me try one more time. Yeah, I don't think you need to see the guy or talk to the guy that just redid our kitchen one more. Hey, speak of the devil, his ears must have been ringing. I, how about Tom Kehoe, founder and president of the Yards Brewing Company? And, you know, I left on good terms, but we'll see. Maybe this will cement it or, or maybe you're, you're about to hear a big fight. Who knows? Yeah, it sounds like a good idea. Let's see if you can dial him up. All right, let me give him a ring. Hey, Tom, how you doing? Hello, who's this? Hey, this is the one and only Tim Roberts. How you doing? Good. How you doing, Tim? Good, good. Life after yards is, while not the same, it's still going well. And, and I got to warn you, I'm doing a podcast, so I kind of sprung this on you. But they asked me to talk a little bit about seltzers and a little bit about my history, which you probably know way too much about those two things after working together <laughs> for a decade. But I don't know. We just wanted to chew the fat and see how you're doing. Sure. I've got a few minutes. Cool. Toby Tucker here, Country Mall Group. Hey, Toby. How you doing? I'm pretty good. This is a bit awkward in that someone that used to work with you is giving you a call, but I appreciate you uh, spending <laughs> some time in this odd call here. But he seems, calls seems... on us all the time. We buy, we buy <laughs> stuff from you guys. There you go. <laughs> see, it seems, seems like a fitting call regarding the subject that uh, Tim was chatting about here today. Yeah, you said you were talking about seltzers and stuff like that. And I was telling Toby that by the time I left, we had sort of played around with some test batches and this and that. But I think yep. you guys are doing a lot more of it now, right? We are doing a lot of seltzers. We're actually contracting for uh, a local uh, seltzer maker called Two Robbers. And how's it going? Going very well. They are, have a popular local brand. I know they're expanding uh, territories. And, you know, it's an interesting change from brewing beer. A lot of the same processes, but at the same time, it, you know, you're looking out for different things. See, vindication, Tom. That, that's one of the things I talked about is that a lot of people don't want to talk about the similarities, but it's a lot of the same kind of idea and same principles of brewing a quality beer go into brewing a quality seltzer, you know? Absolutely. You know, it's your SOPs. It's the things that you do on a normal basis to keep your beer clean. You're going to want to do the same thing for a seltzer. Yeah, absolutely. And I was also talking about, there's a couple, I think maybe two or three times I referred to myself as a dinosaur because I'm old, but not as old as you, granted, sure. But yes, that is true. Oh, come on. <laughs> <laughs> that was a shot. Yeah, well, sure. I think From we him, had that, that was kind mellow. Of, yeah, right. <laughs> we are on a public forum here. But we kind of both saw, you know, from going way back in the day, Two Dogs and Hooch and Zima and stuff like that. And I'm just wondering your take about, I don't know, the future of it or, or how that's going. It's really interesting. I mean, we're talking about, you know, adapting to the marketplace. And it's like, do you follow trends with doing a beer like a hazy IPA if you never did a hazy IPA before? I mean, doing things like that, this is no different than, than following a trend that all these places that make seltzer, they're all made at breweries. White Claw doesn't have a seltzer factory. They're contract brewing somewhere. It's a brewing process. Yeah, what I said earlier. Same way beer is. 
And it's something that you can do poorly or you can do well. And it's just a way, you know, it's a way to A, be creative and to, to show your chops in a different way. Right. It's why you do test batches. You know, I mean, you can, you know, rip down fermentation, get it up to alcohol, get it, you know, whatever. But if you're using yeast or something that's not giving you a good flavor profile, you might need to ferment slow or change things around. It's all in how, in how you run your brew house and what flavor profile you want to get out of your seltzer. Now, Tom, are you guys doing your, your own brand of seltzer there at Yards or just we, contract brand? We're not. We came out with a couple new brands this year. Believe it or not, during COVID, we're coming out with new brands. And so we're concentrating on that. And, you know, we're looking at the seltzer, maybe. We're not sure. You know, we want to see the market play on a little bit more before we're ready to commit to a seltzer. And Tim, this may be a question for you as well, but you know, I know there's different types of seltzers, right? I mean, there's, there's wine-based, there's obviously sugar bases, and, and I see some popularity of some you know, wine spritzers, and there's different names for them. Are, are they ultimately the same thing, just starting with a different fermentation base? Well, I would say with that, you're talking about a different tax base too. The cheaper uh, tax okay. base is always the malt base, or I guess if you're using pure sugar, that's being considered a different kind of malt beverage. So- I think that's why most of them are malt-based. As opposed to using wine, which a lot of people are playing around with. Right. A like lot the of old days of doing the wine bottles and James wine coolers and stuff like yeah. that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, I, you know, I think that was, uh, you know, more of the gimmick. I mean, yep. you know, what are you going to do with bad wine? You know, put juice in it and sell it? Well, and, and those <laughs> were sold in liquor stores, weren't they? Probably not everyone knows how Pennsylvania works, but we have a really strange alcohol sales system. But weren't bottles and James and stuff, they were sold in liquor stores, not beer distributors, yeah. weren't they? Right. Yeah, they, so. they had to be sold in the store. But if you're in Jersey, everything's sold in the same place. So it didn't even, nobody, it w- there was no hiccup there. Except for the tax issue. Right. Well, I know there's a lot of people diving into the market. And again, I'm, I'm not trying to throw anybody off course here, but here in Texas, you go into the new, I don't know, I could call it Globe Life Park, but the old ballpark in Arlington, you go in there and order a margarita. It's actually a fermented malt base, correct? Well, that's what I've heard. Huh. It's, yeah. yeah, I, mean, you yeah. Can, I mean, when you start talking yeah. about fermentations and, and things that are not 80 proof or, you know, if you're going to, in theory, dilute something from 80 proof to about, you know, what's a margarita, maybe five, eight percent by volume. Right. You can just do that straight up. Then you don't have to distill it and you don't have to pay the taxes that way. Right. So why not? And one thing that, you know, you're mentioning a margarita, a lot of things that's becoming really popular here in Pennsylvania is these beer slushies. And right. some of them are like a margarita-flavored malt beverage that they're putting in these slushy machines, getting them to freeze, and serving them to the, the to-go public. Because you really aren't able to really sit and go to restaurants the same way as you used to. So people are taking things to go. And it's hot. Sure. So the, the frozen drinks are working. And I would think in a ballpark like that, absolutely, is what would happen. You know, obviously this is tough times for all of us with COVID going on. And I'm just curious like, what you guys are working on. Is there anything specific kind of you're focused on during these times and, and kind of what the next six months to a year looks like over there for you guys? So what hasn't slowed down for us is the packaged product, bottles and cans. The keg product has really slowed down and really hurt us because being in a big city, having a lot of draft accounts, taverns and bars all across the city, we've lost all that business since nothing's really going. But that has been picked up with takeout and I guess what we call the off-premise. So we're concentrating on that. We're really working on trying to make sure we're working with our customers to be a better supplier to them. And, you know, also coming out with new brands. We came out with a hazy IPA right in the beginning of March. 
And we just came out with sort of like a hazy, low-calorie, citrusy pale ale. So we're coming out with new products and trying to do, uh, you know, innovative things with uh, packaging, you know, by doing cans and doing different size cans. You know, we have our our stadium pack, which was the 19.2-ounce can of Philly Pale, which the stadiums haven't been open. So we've adapted to that, and we're selling them where you would buy singles, you know, in the stores that six-pack shops where you might get a single to go or something like that. So, you know, it's, it's all packaged product these days and it's working out that we're having some growth there and it's good for us as a packaging brewery. A lot of these smaller breweries that were only really selling cans and bottles over the counter or over the bar and, you know, selling a few things to go. They're not having the same success during this time. Granted, we're still down, but we're properly staffed for that. So. Well, you know, we're hoping this thing ends soon. Obviously, uh, hoping that everybody makes it through it. And Tim, any any final thoughts before we let Tom get back to business? No, and I know he has lots of stuff to take care of. I remember, um, as Toby said, feel free to email me with questions. And nice catching up for a little bit, Tom. And, and thanks for your yeah, time. Definitely. I appreciate it. Dad, thanks for the call. I appreciate being this impromptu being part of something. That's great. Thanks for lending us Tim on our team. He's a, he's a fantastic <laughs> addition, and we're, uh, we're super happy he's here with us, and I guess I should thank you for that. Absolutely. <laughs> he's a class act. All right, Tom. Hey, I appreciate it. Have a great day. All right. Bye now. Hey, once again, Tim, I really appreciate your time hey, and sure. joining us today. Just obviously a wealth of knowledge, and, and you and I could chat all day about seltzers, but we are short of time. But I, I would encourage everybody again to uh, to reach out to a territory manager here at Country Mall Group, or if you want to specifically reach out to Tim, he's at Tim Roberts at countrymalt.com. So more than happy to answer any of your questions. And uh, I hope everybody hangs with us for next episode. I'm sure it'll be interesting. So I, I appreciate everybody's time. And Tim, I will chat with you soon and take care, buddy. Absolutely. Thanks, Toby. We look forward to seeing everybody on the next Lone Post session. Please join us. Again, I'm your host, Toby Tucker. Have a good one. Cheers.